0: Kent Online News. News you can trust. This is the Kent Online Podcast. Nicola Everett. It's Tuesday the 13th of August coming up. Daughter still hopes to solve mystery of mum's disappearance more than 20 years on. She
1: said she was having tea with some little old ladies um, the last time I spoke to her on the phone and um, she was in Tunbridge Wells and having a lovely time
0: exploring is what she said to me. Could eating less meat help tackle climate change?
2: What we're told and what we hear is that we as individuals need to decide to eat less meat and i think that's highly unfair on us as individuals we need we don't need individual change we need system change
0: the kent sites making it onto a new lonely planet guide
3: i think once again the more popular which still keeps getting year on year week on week almost um we've got to have a bigger push for more sustainable transport, encourage people to use public transport and things like that.
0: Kent Online News. Well, our top story today is all about the ongoing mystery of a mum's disappearance more than 20 years ago. Marion Barter left her family in Australia in 1997, telling them she was going on holiday to England for a year. She's known to have visited Tunbridge and stay in Tunbridge Wells. But after that she vanished. Her daughter, Sally Layden, has been speaking to us on Skype about their ongoing quest to find out what happened.
1: So, my mum went on a um, year-long holiday to the UK in 1997 and the first contact we had with her was um, a letter that was uh, stamped at Kent. In the UK. Um, it was quite a lengthy letter. It had about nine pages to it from the hotel that she had stayed in um, in Tokyo. Uh, and yeah, so that kind of was the first point of call she had. She told us that she was in Tunbridge Wells and, um, yeah, proceeding postcards from her sort of sent us through. Alphaston and down to Brighton. I actually contacted Kent Lee's quite early on. Um, Obviously, she's been missing for 20 years and it's been quite a lengthy journey. Um, Her passport did come back into Australia under a different name on the 2nd of August in 1997. So for us, we weren't 100% sure if it was her using her passport or if somebody else had used her passport. Um, But um, that happened in 1997 and I contacted Kent Police to see if we could do some sort of report over there. But I was told that that had to come through, um, that that unfortunately had to come through Queensland and New South Wales Police here in Australia. And um, unfortunately they weren't happy to uh, uh, do much with Mum's case um, at the time, so um, it became a bit of a problem for me in trying to gain access and information to that area in the UK until recently when we flew over there and retraced mum's steps. You know, I guess if we could put it out there to that in, that area, even she stayed in a hotel there. She said she was having tea with some little old ladies um, the last time I spoke to her on the phone. And um, she was in Tunbridge Wells and having a lovely time exploring is what she said to me. So um, I firmly believe that there may be people out there that know who she was or bumped into her or had a chat with her she obviously she did say in her letter to me that she was aghast at how many people knew that she was Australian um based on her accent and I think she sort of tongue-in-cheek said do I really sound that bad because she always felt that she liked to speak quite well and proper um and uh, people were recognizing that she was an Aussie from her accent so I guess Someone might remember something, you know. Um, that was the last known place um, that we've ever i had ever spoken to her, and I was the last person to speak to her that I'm I'm aware of, um, known to me. So,
0: yeah, if,
1: if I, you know anybody in the UK or in Cambridge Wells, could help me. Even Alfriston, she went down to there's a, there was a little shop there called Sally's Craft back in the day, and she sent me a postcard. Um, the lady in the shop there when we visited said. Uh, we had confirmation that this, she had put a sticker on the back of the card saying Sally's Craft and the lady said she would have had to specifically ask for that because she only put them on gift wrapping um, when she was doing gift wrapping. So the fact that she went the trouble of asking for that sticker to be put on the back that said Sally's Craft and obviously my name's Sally so it was quite, quite a nice um, point that she was thinking of me and, you know, it obviously was a nice moment for her to go, I should get a postcard from here for Sally. Um, and then we went down to Brighton as well. So she definitely travelled a fair way down the coast. Um, I think the last postcard was sent from Hastings. Um, so definitely that whole coastal region, if anyone had any information or if anyone remembered her, um, that would definitely be the locations that we'd be looking at around in that
0: Kent region. Kent Online reports. An investigation is due to get underway after a fire broke out at a derelict hospital building in Folkestone. At its height, around 40 firefighters were tackling the flames at the Royal Victoria on Radnor Park Road last night. You can see pictures from the scene at kentonline.co.uk. A woman hurt in a crash in Broadstairs has died from her injuries. The 87-year-old was in one of three cars involved in the collision on Northwood Road on Saturday. A man arrested over what happened has been released while police investigate. The number of people out of work in Kent has gone up again. Last month nearly 30,000 were claiming Jobseeker's Allowance or Universal Credit, 825 more than in June. Across the country there are now 1.33 million people without a job. On to climate change now, a topic that's been high on the agenda recently, with protests bringing parts of the capital to a standstill. Well here, nine out of the 13 local councils in Kent have now declared a climate emergency and bid to reduce carbon emissions. Ashford and Dover have rejected the idea, while Dartford and Sevenoaks are yet to decide. The KM Community Podcast has been speaking to Dr Charlie Gardner, a professor at the University of Kent. He's been chatting to Ollie about whether all of us eating less meat will also help tackle the problem.
2: Meat production, animal agriculture and particularly um, industrial meat production is a big contributor to climate change um, for a couple of reasons. One is that, that ruminants um, like cattle produce methane and methane is a much, much more powerful greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide but the main reason is that eating meat is a vastly inefficient um, way of, of producing food so because of of the inefficiencies of an animal converting the food it eats into flesh so um, the, generally uh, you know, the the figure given is, is of an order, order of magnitude. So a 10, there's a ten times reduction in in energy um, between the food that a that a, a cow eats and the, the energy it will it will generate when it's eaten. So you know, what that means is lands that would be um, the land required to produce enough meat for one person would have been able to produce enough plant food for ten people. So it's hugely inefficient. Um, Having said that I'm I'm slightly concerned with the way that this information is is present is used and presented because when we hear that we as a society need to eat less meat what we' what we're told and what we hear is that we as individuals need to decide to eat less meat and I think that's highly unfair on us as individuals we need we don't need, individual change we need system change and you know it's really unfair on us to to be told on the one hand you need to eat less meat but on the other hand to go shopping and be presented with huge amounts of, of, of cheap meat and to walk the streets and be bombarded with advertisements for, for um, you know, burgers.
4: Yeah, uh, but it, what, is, is the alternative feasible? Because in my mind, the alternative, if you're not going to suggest that people need to make their own decisions on whether they do, do or don't eat meat, you are going to be either restricting meat purchasing in supermarkets or restricting the advertising of meat. And then you've got that some people might say then that you've got a big brother mentality happening where you're stopping people from eating the things that they want to eat.
2: Well, it's a question of human survival. Local councils and and governments around the country have declared a state of climate emergency. We need to think about that word emergency. It is an emergency. And in an emergency, you change your normal behaviour. And of course, it's not going to be um, you know all all pleasant um, but it, it needn't be um, you know, horrific either if we start making changes now but I think you know, we need to acknowledge that we cannot carry on as normal with with regards to meat I think you know the most important thing is to, Um, to look at the economics of it and change the economics so that the huge costs of producing meat are factored into the price. We eat a lot of meat now because it is artificially cheap. It's hugely subsidized and there are what economists call externalities. So the costs of meat production are not factored into it. Um, Producing meat emits a hell of a lot of carbon and that carbon, it's, you know, It's taking away the futures of our children and and grandchildren. So that's a huge social cost that everyone is paying for meat production. If there were um, taxes on um, emitting carbon or a a, a proper price on on carbon that reflects the damage it causes to society, then that would be reflected in the price of meat and it would become... um, more expensive, we would treat it as a special thing as as we always have done and don't forget our you know our habit of, of eating meat every day and, and, and sometimes multiple times a day is a very new thing you know my parents grew up having meat as a special treat perhaps once a week and that's how um, most of the world in, in non industrialized countries um, st- still still lives and yeah, I, I'm, I'm not saying we need to you know, cease eating all, all meat immediately, but we need to think about how we produce it and we need to go back to having it as as a special thing, rather than something we take for granted eating every meal. Kent Online reports.
0: Plans to expand a traveller's site in Kent have been given the go-ahead, despite some councillors saying they felt forced into the decision. The land on Roman Villa Road in Darrant Hill will now be able to have 11 pitches instead of the current six, to help tackle a shortage of available space in the area. But some of the planning committee criticised the government's gypsy and traveller policy. The people who've been given permission to open a giant ad- Adventure Centre of Bluewater have insisted it won't become an amusement park. A zip wire, Gravity Swing, Sky Trek obstacle course and rock climbing will open at the shopping centre after plans from Hangloose Adventure were given the go-ahead. Some people living nearby had raised concerns about noise and traffic. Meantime, a new entertainment centre has opened at the site of an £850,000 leisure complex in Ashford. There'll be things like gigs, food markets and vintage clothes sales at the Coachworks near the International Station but it'll only be there for five years when it's turned into part of the site's commercial quarter. More than a dozen Kent places and events have been ranked today among the top 500 things for travellers to do. 14 sites, including Margate's Shell Grotto and Canterbury Cathedral, have made it into Lonely Planet's ultimate United Kingdom travel list guide. A trip to the Oyster Festival in Whitstable makes it as one of the best experiences. Neil Baker is a local councillor in the town.
3: Well, as always, it's absolutely great for Whitstable to get um, all the recognition it does. It seems increasingly common which should never be sniffed at. Uh, We're very lucky, we have a lot of people who put in a lot of good work for the town. Um, Obviously in this instance we've got those who organise the Oyster Festival. But I think we should also remember the traders who of course put in so much year round um, to promote the town and also the residents who while they do enjoy the festival and the activities, they they do sometimes have to put up with a little bit more traffic and crowds of people on the streets um, than they would normally.
0: And um, also, so are you familiar with Lonely Planet guides yourself?
3: Yeah, I mean they're they're, they're very. It's very impressive. I mean, it, it, it is a prestigious publication to get into, um, w- which is great. Um, to get recognition at that level of something that people do read and do take into consideration when they choose to visit different places.
0: And so, do you think because it's you know such a reputable? Um, Publication, do you think that will have a significant impact? Um, like, obviously, tourism is already pretty, you know, good in Whitstable. Do you think it could make it even better? Well,
3: um, uh, it can't be, uh, it, it can't do it any bad, of course. But I, I do, of course, worry sometimes that w- Whitstable's almost at saturation points in the key season. So, uh, um, especially as we have had this year, lots of confusion about the roadworks coming down from the M2 and everything. So. Uh, I think once again the more popular it still keeps getting year-on-year, week-on-week almost. Um, we've got to have a bigger push for more sustainable transport, encourage people to use public transport and things like that because, you know, going back to the old days, of people all get piling in their cars and coming down. It, it just really isn't uh, something we need going forward because we're running out of space almost. <laughs> There's only so many people you can take in a town. And there's only so many people who can shop in the shops and eat in the cafes at the same time. So yeah.
0: In terms of the oyster festival itself, what do you think makes it stand out so much, um, that it's been sort of ranked so highly in the in the guide? Well, I
3: think it's because I mean the oyster festival has been around in many different guises now for a good few years. Um, it's changed. It's evolved. Um, as, as these things do. It's become something that happens at a, you know, broadly similar time every year. It's great that it happens the first weekend after the schools break up. I think that's a huge boost because it's before people disappear on holiday and things. And, of course, Whitsap Oysters is something that's gone back since Roman times, thousands of years. And, uh, you know, despite all the modern things that you get these days, there is still that proper tradition to it um, dating back so far. And I think people like that. And I think especially when people want more and more to learn more about the history and heritage of their own country rather than... You know always flying around the world to different places they like to see what's actually just down the road for them or even on their own doorstep and uh, learn about it that way
0: kent online sports adam Peaty has been at a swimming pool in medway today to try and inspire the next generation of champions the olympic gold medalist and breaststroke world record holder has held a race clinic at Stroud sports center he was joined by fellow olympian tim shuttleworth youth commonwealth champion edward baxter and strength and conditioning coach rob norman and adam spoke to to Kent online from the event
4: so the second day we're doing five days uh, 100 kids a day uh, across the country and we're just trying to inspire as many people as we can and obviously the staple is on that they're going to have fun Uh, that's almost a given with these kind of things we're not we are serious when we get to work but around the edges the kids should be smiling they are smiling and they're learning and uh, it's almost engaging the kids to think very differently about sport you know for me when i was growing up i was too, way too serious about it at their age their ages need to carry it through and then you know, start to absolutely nail it when they're older the
5: key to this is you're here hands on deck in the pool with them teaching them
4: hands on aren't you yeah yeah sure yeah so yeah i've been in here for about <laughs> four hours now in about 35 degrees uh, which is good really because i'm always in the pool instead of out of it so i've got a new appreciation for my coach but yeah i mean it's yeah you've got to climatise, but yeah, the kids are almost so nervous to kind of see you, you've got to kind of break, break the ice with them, show them, you know, I am a normal person, I was just like them, and, you know, I just worked extremely hard to get to where I am. That's a massive thing for you as a, as a youngster. You didn't really take
5: up swimming full time till you were about, what, 17, 18, is no, that right? no. So, yeah,
4: really, yeah, full, full time
5: about 16, 17. Yeah. So it's almost like never too late for you to get into that. And that's, I suppose, the message to get into and If they love it that much, it's never too late. And they could, they could be take- challenging your records one yeah, day Yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. And when I was their
4: age, I was 88th just in the East Midlands alone. So 88th in the East Midlands. Not even the whole country. I was probably like four hundred or 500th. Like, uh, yeah, it's an absolutely abysmal kind of place to be at that age. But, you know, I just showed you that it doesn't really matter if you're first or you're hundred or 1,000th place, if you apply yourself and kind of listen to the people around you use the people around you to perform you know who knows what can happen
5: you mentioned who knows what can happen what some of the secrets they're going to learn from you today it's mostly about the breaststroke but what can they what will they be learning exactly today
4: so we're doing a lot of visualisation so using the mind for good um, and obviously it's kind of closing your eyes imagining your Olympic Games and kind of preparing themselves for you know, the next few years of you know, nationals and British Championships and stuff like that because they are very nerve-wracking for the first time you go so it's almost trying to overcome that and visualize that before you can get there which you know r- you know really helps me during the olympic games
5: there's a mental strength to swimming as well you do have to be really calm and, and calm your breathing as well can you explain that
4: yeah definitely so yeah i mean on the on the breaststroke really get to breathe every once uh, once every stroke but on the uh, really you know swimming is about relaxation it's kind of obviously you're really retired your arms are, you know killing your legs are killing your lungs are burning but in that, you've got to kind of be an equilibrium that you, you know what you're doing. There's a calm voice in your head saying, look, take this stroke faster, take your stroke slower or attack a little bit more. So, yeah, you've got to have that kind of calm voice in your head, really. Would it Last sort of
5: question for me. Would it be nice for you at one of your Adam PT race clinics for someone here from Strew
4: to be challenging your records one day, breaking oh, them? Yeah, I, mean, I think I've seen a few, uh, few applicants for that spot. But, yeah, I mean, it's obviously going to go back to a British person, you know. I wouldn't be British if I wasn't saying that. So, yeah, it'd be great to obviously continue that legacy until when I want to retire retire and get, you know, one of these kids here. Imagine, you know, if they came on one of my clinics and then the next world champion or next Olympic champion, that would be really something special. Even if they don't beat your record? Yeah, yeah.
0: That's it for today. But for more news throughout the day and overnight, don't forget you can head to kentonline.co.uk. News you can trust. This is the Kent Online Podcast.